All right, so we want to jump into this. So we're talking about the I Am's of Christ. And the whole, the whole point of this, um, and I'll be preaching this. Pastor Nathan's going to preach next Sunday. Uh, my dad, who's with the kids right now, um, y'all pray for the kids, not for my dad. My dad has Cam. If you know Cam and my dad, they're probably up there. I bet nobody has a shirt on, you know. They're probably all doing burpees and push-ups and squats up there. And the first kid that back talks, one of those two uh, rednecks is going to get thrown out, out the balcony. So pray for the kids. But my dad's going to preach a message in this series too. And the, and the whole thing is, throughout the book of John, 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 Ruby's like, I got to go help him out. I got to go. Ruby's a Pentecostal. She's running in church already. Um, so... So the thing is, the thing is, in, throughout the book of John, there is uh, this concept that John tends to focus on. And, and in John's writing about Jesus, he focuses on the fact that Jesus is constantly calling himself God. And a lot of people, atheists, are going to tell you that Jesus never calls himself God. But, but really, the book of John is full of it. Absolutely full of it. Um, Jesus is constantly using the I am statements. And so um, last week we talked about how he said before Abraham was I am. This is a statement pulled from the Old Testament from Exodus where God named himself I am. In other words, what God was saying was is I am whatever you need me to be in the moment that you need me to be that. And so that's what we talked about last Sunday. Um, and then there's, there's a variety of other statements that Jesus makes. He calls himself, he says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. Uh, he, he goes, he says, I am the true vine. And so he talks about all these I am statements. And so today we're going to pick one of them out. We're not going in any kind of chronological order, but we're going to pick one out. And we're going to John chapter 14. And, um, and in John chapter 14, I want to give you some context. So uh, sometimes whenever, not the writers of the Bible, you know that, uh, you probably know this. When John wrote the book of John, he did not write chapters and put little verse numbers on there. Okay? That was done way after. That was done by people who were organizing the Bible and organizing the works. And, and what they did is they added the chapters and the verse numbers to help us be able to navigate the Bible a little bit easier. The problem with that is, although it does help us navigate, it's kind of difficult because it throws our stories off. Right? Because here's the thing, the book of John, we're going to talk about verse 14, but really, you have to go back to 13, 14, 15, it's all one time frame. But because we see them in different chapters, we kind of mentally check out and think it's all different time frames. So, in, in John chapter 14, here's what's happening. Jesus has just had the last supper with his disciples. So, Jesus is on his way to the cross, he's about to be crucified. And before that, he has the Passover meal. We talked about that last week with, the, with communion is, is the Passover meal. So he's having the Passover meal with his disciples. And, and, and in that framework, he tells the disciples, hey, I'm about to die. The disciples are like, oh, no, this ain't going to happen. Like Peter's like, I'll defend you. I'll get a sword and cut off someone's ear. Like nobody's going to get you. And Jesus is like, you know what, Peter, as a matter of fact, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny that you even know me. He says, as a matter of fact, all of you guys are going to scatter and leave me. No one's even going to be with me. And he says that one of you is going to betray me to get me arrested. And that's going to be Judas. And straight up points him out. And, and so they're having this moment, this dinner that's supposed to be, um, I think in their minds, it's a spiritual moment. But Jesus brings it down to earth real quick with some reality and says, hey guys, this, this is it. Like, 
I don't know if you understand this or not, but the three years of my ministry has culminated to this point, and I'm about to be, I'm about to be crucified. And so you have to imagine if you've been with someone for three years, and you've been working alongside them, and these guys, it wasn't like us working with people where we go home and come back. These guys would travel for days and weeks at a time, and, and they were close to Jesus. They were right there with him, and now they, they're coming to this realization that he's about to die for real. And for some of these guys, it was, it was broken promises and dreams. I mean, Judas, the whole reason Judas betrayed Jesus is Judas had this whole mindset that Jesus was going to come in and set them free, set the Jews free from the Romans. And when Judas realized that that's not what Jesus was doing, that he wasn't a political leader, he was a, he was a spiritual leader, then all of a sudden Judas begins to back out on his commitment, and that's when he turns on Jesus. A lot of these guys, like this is a reality check moment. And so for these disciples, they're hurt. They're broken, they're confused, they're scared, they don't know what's going to happen. Jesus is talking about being arrested, he's talking about everybody scattering, he's, he, they don't know what's going on. They know one of their closest friends has, has totally betrayed them, and, and so they don't know what's happening. And so, so that's where we're going to pick up. I, I just want you to have the context that, that this isn't Jesus. When I've read the, the whole idea of I'm the way, the truth, and the life, which is what we're going to get into today, when I've read that in my past, I often think about it as in Jesus talking to sinners, Right? He's talking to a bunch of sinners, and he's telling all these sinners, I'm the way, and you got to follow me, and I'm the truth, and you got to have me in your life, and I'm the life. I'm the, and, and that's my mindset. But whenever I read the context and I realize that the mindset is, a, is to believers, first of all, and second of all, it's to people that are scared and worried and um, confused, and they don't know what's going to happen with their life. And so that really brings it home to me. Because how many times in our life do we find ourselves in that position? We're scared, we're worried, we're confused. Maybe, maybe we're hurt. Um, I, I said this last week. We uh, a couple weeks ago we we went through um, our church family had had people in our church family that had passed away, and and we had three funerals. Um, we're praying right now, and I want you to continue to pray for the McQuins as they deal with Evie's passing. That that's that's inevitable and, and soon without a miracle. And, and so we need to understand that there's, there's lots of this kind of stuff that happens in our everyday life and we don't think about it. Some of us get very confused and, and hurt over our jobs, over, over our families. And so we face a lot of this stuff all the time. And, and we think that being a Christian just means everything's going to be happy-go-lucky and it's going to be great and we're going to walk around with a smile on our face all the time. And that's just not reality. And so Jesus, with that context, look at the first thing he says, and this is where we're going to start our message. John 14, 1. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. My, my first, first thing I just want to say right off the bat is he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And, and the fact that he says it as a command means that we have some control over our emotions. So don't, don't come to me and say, well, you just, well, you know how I am, Pastor. I just can't, you know, I just fly off the handle. No, no, no. If you fly off the handle, it's because you are allowing yourself to fly off the handle. Well, you know how I am. I just get down in the dumps and I just, no, no. If you're doing that, it's because you are allowing yourself to do that. And I get it. We all have our moments. But Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's a command to us. The second thing he says is, trust in God, trust also in me. And so the, the main word that I want to use today is the word trust. That's going to be our main word. And the first thing you need to understand about trust is that there is comfort in trust. Right? There is comfort in trust. 
Think about how comfortable you are when you are with people that you trust. Now, I am, um, me, most people don't believe this. They don't believe that I'm, a, I'm an introvert because I can get on stage and talk to a big group of people. But I really do struggle talking to new people. Like, I really struggle in groups of people that I don't know. I, I, I get very introverted. As a matter of fact, there's been times when, um, when I've had to go places and, and I'm always wanting to take Perry with me because Perry doesn't struggle at all. Like, Perry can talk to anybody and they're her best friend within five minutes. Like, that's just kind of how Perry is. And so we'll go to things like if Perry has something for her school and I have to go to it, I will be, like, right behind her the whole time. Like, I'm just walking like this, you know. And it's not because I had knee surgery. It's just because I'm, you know, embarrassed and I'm scared or whatever the case is, right? I'm introverted. And, and, and so, so, but there's this level of trust that I have when Perry's there. And so if I ever have to go somewhere on my own, Perry always says, well, how'd you do? Did you talk to people? You know? And I'm like, no. I sat in the back and I was by myself and I played on my phone. You know? But, um, but there's this level of trust that I have when Perry's around. And, and, and trust is one of those things that brings comfort to us. Right now we're, we're teaching our daughter, um, Emma, she just got her learner's permit. And there's, there's not a whole lot scarier in life than teaching your kid how to drive. Those of you that have kids, you, you're you going to get this. Um, one day, if your kids aren't old enough, you'll understand. And some of you are like, oh, no, I can teach my kid how to drive. It's going to be great. Okay. Put a video on whenever you do that. I want to see what happens in your car when your kid is driving. And and the other day, we're in the car, and Emma is, is I was like, all right, we're at Winn-Dixie parking lot. I'm like, pull out. We're going to the right. You know, we're going home. And, and so she goes to pull out of Winn-Dixie parking lot. Now, you know how Highway 11 is. I mean, there's cars flying up and down Highway 11. And so she pulls out. And as she pulls out in the road, she stops so that she can turn the wheel and go. And I was like, you got to go. you got to go. For the love of God, hit the gas. you got to hit the gas. Like, you never tell a kid to go fast. And I'm screaming, go fast. Run, go, go. Because there's cars coming, and I know I'm about to die. And I know what's going to happen. Little kid, teenagers are made out of rubber. She'll get in a car accident. She'll just bounce around on the ground. I'm old. I've already had a surgery. This week, I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. And so, and so being in a car with a kid that's learning how to drive, there is no trust whatsoever. Therefore, there is no comfort whatsoever. If I'm in the car with my parents or with my wife, someone that's driven for a lot of years, you know what I can do? I can lean the seat back and I can go to sleep. I can rest because I know I'm going to get where I need to be. But when my teenager is driving, there's no rest. There's no rest whatsoever. As a matter of fact, um, I told her the other day, she said, Dad, can I drive home from practice? Um, this is volleyball practice. It's like 9.30, you know, 9.45 at night. Can I drive home from practice? I was like, no, baby, you cannot drive home from practice. She's like, why? I said, because dad is tired. And she's like, yeah, so let me drive so you can rest. I was like, no, no, it doesn't work that way. I wouldn't rest anyway. Let me just drive us home and get us home right now so we don't have to worry about it. But she's a good driver. She hasn't had um, any wrecks yet, unlike her brother, whose car looks like it's been in a demolition derby. (laughs) So trust brings comfort. Trust brings comfort, and, and we need to understand that today. So the, the number one thing, the foundation of the message today is trust, and trust brings comfort. When I'm hurting and broken and scared and worried, if I have trust, then, then I can be comfortable in that. I can, I can back off of my fear as long as I have trust. So let's keep going. John, uh, back to John 14. 
Verses 2 and 3 says this. There is more than enough room in my father's home. All of a sudden, Jesus transitions real fast. He goes from, don't be worried, trust in God, trust also in me. Then he starts busting out some stuff about, um, about heaven. He says, there's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you uh, that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you always be with me where I am. So the second thing I want you to know today is that not only is trust comforting, but I have to trust that he's preparing a future. I have to trust that he's preparing a future. Now notice what I said. Notice the words there. Notice the words of Christ. It does not say trust that there is a future. I have to trust that he is literally working to prepare a future for me. In the Old Testament, when we, when we read through Exodus, the Bible says that God is taking the Israelites from a place of slavery in Egypt to what they call the promised land, Canaan land, right? And he's taking them, transitioning them from one place to the other. But it says in the Old Testament, if you look it up in, in um, Exodus, he says, I am driving out the enemies in that land. I am already, before you get there, preparing the land for you. The same is true for us spiritually when it comes to heaven. He is preparing a place for us. And that may not be much of a difference to you, but the difference it makes to me is the personal touch it adds. It shows me that he cares enough about me in my discomfort, in my fear, in my doubt, in my wandering, in my confusion. He cares enough about me that he's already preparing a future for me. Whether it's a future in heaven or a future here on earth. So in other words, if you're going through a struggle at your job and you're confused and you're hurt and your boss is being mean to you and your co-workers don't like you, you need to understand if you're in the will of God that he is preparing a place for you. And maybe it's not time for you to move out of that job. I remember a time in my life when I was ready to move jobs. I was ready to, to pack up and leave. And I remember Perry telling me, it's not time. She says, I've been praying too, and I just don't feel like it's time. So you need to be comfortable in your discomfort until God prepares a place. And the whole time, in my discomfort, God was preparing something for my future. And he's doing that for us. But the cool thing is, and we're going to side note, we're going to get nerdy for just a second. The cool thing is that future is not just here on earth. He does prepare a future for us in heaven. And so it says here that he is preparing a place. And he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Now, there's going to be some translations that translate this very poorly. And they translate it to mansions, right? How many of y'all have ever heard that we're all going to have a mansion in heaven? Who's ever heard that? And so what you think is, what you think is that there's going to be this driveway, right, with a bunch of statues of little angels spitting water, you know, and hedges, and you're going to get up to this big mansion. It's going to have your name right on top, you know. It's going to say Gala. And then down at the bottom will say Ann Dexter, right? Because we know how it is. We get it. And, and, so, and so we know that's what we think is going to happen. But let me disappoint you just a, just a little bit. The Bible doesn't say mansion. It says my father's house, singular, then it says there are many rooms. So guess what you're going to get? You get a room. That's it. You just get one room. That's all you got. Sorry to disappoint you. Well, maybe it's more like an apartment. Maybe we're going to graduate to an apartment in the sky. Right? The Jeffersons. Right? Um, and so some of y'all got that. The rest of y'all are way too young. Um, 
But here's the truth. Here's the truth. This is, I just think this is cool. A couple of things to think about when it comes to this. I just think this is neat. It has nothing to do with the message. Just something neat. A couple of things to say. One, if you look back at um, Middle Eastern culture, a lot of times what they would do is they would have a tent. So my family would have a tent. And then as my kids get married, right, I would add on to the tent another room. It'd be, there'd be a curtain in between. Super weird. Like, why would you? I don't even know. But there would be a curtain, and then that would be another tent added on to my tent. And that tent is added on for my kids and their family. And then as they have kids and they need to add rooms, they begin to add on to their tents. And so sometimes you'll see in some Middle Eastern cultures back in those days, they would have this sprawling complex of tents. It'd be like a tent city, right? And a lot of them were connected because as they had kids, they just keep adding on rooms. What does that mean for me? This sounds very cool to me because I think about it's not just a house in heaven that's off on its own land. It's a part of his house. I get to be a part of Father God's house. So I've got a room in his house. Another cool thing to think about, when the Bible talks about new Jerusalem, so the Bible says that that the earth will pass away, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the Bible says that at some point the the people will look up and they will see uh, new Jerusalem coming down. And in the book of Revelation, John says, how big is that? Because he's a man, and every man wants to know how big that is, right? And so an angel goes out, and he measures New Jerusalem. And I'm not going to get into all the measurements, but here's a cool thing to think about. In the measuring of New Jerusalem, if you were to apply those measurements to today's terms, you're talking about a city that's in a cube that's the size of the moon. Now, when we start thinking about Am I going to have room in the house? You're talking about a house the size of the moon. I heard a guy say one time, he said, if you take 25% of that square footage, you could fit comfortably 20 billion people in that area. Here's another neat, neat little thought on that. At that size, at that size of a building, um, that size of a of place, you could have a building that would be multiple floors. And let's just be generous. Let's, let's make our floors, instead of 8-foot floors or 10-foot floors, make them 12-foot floors. You could have a building that would fit in there that would not be 600 floors tall. It would be 600,000 floors tall. Why am I saying all that nerdy stuff? A, because I just think it's cool to think about. But B... We need to understand that he is preparing a place for us. And I just think it's so neat that there is work being done in the eternal right now for me and you. That no matter what I'm going through on earth, no matter what struggle and pain and stuff I'm dealing with, yes, he's got a future for me here on earth, but he's got a future for me in the beyond. He's got a future for me in heaven. So when I deal with with the pain of loss, I know that there's something bigger and better out there. Here's the key to that trust is the key to that trust is you just got to hold on. You just got to hold on. You just can't quit. You can't give up. We got to just hold on. And in Matthew 24, uh, 12 and 13 says this, Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That was Jesus. Jesus says you got to hold on. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't quit. Let's keep going. John chapter 14. We'll move down to verse 4 now. In verse 4, 
I love this. This is so realistic. And you know the way to where I'm going. So Jesus is talking to the, the disciples. He's just told them that he's leaving. He's told them that he's going to prepare a place. And then he says, and you know the way that I'm going. Verse 5. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? I love that. Look at the reality of that. That would be something I would probably say in a meeting. Like, like if Jesus is like, and you guys know how to get there. And Thomas is like, no, we don't. We don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Where are you going? Thomas doesn't have a clue, right? And, 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 so, so, Jesus, and so Jesus tells him, this is the, the key part, verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had already known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. A couple of things that we're going to point out in there before we jump into our notes. First of all, he says, I am the way. The, the Greek wording on that, uh, if you were to break down the grammar on that, means it's not just saying I am the way. He's saying I am the only way. He's saying there is no other way besides me. No, no Buddha, no Muhammad, and, and we... Sometimes we think that way, right? We think, oh, well, he's definitely talking about Buddha Muhammad. No, no, no. He's also talking about you and me. We're not a way. My works don't get me to heaven. I don't earn my way into that place. He is the way. Only through his sacrifice. He is the only way. And there's no other way to get to God except through Jesus Christ. And so whenever we look at that, I want to look at his way, um, his truth, and his life. Number So third point today is going to be this. We need to trust in his way. Here's the thing about his way. His way is unconventional, right? You look through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is not one conventional thing that happens in the Bible, right? As far as God is concerned. God never operates on a level of, oh yeah, that makes sense. He always operates outside of common sense. And I think it's just to prove that he is who he says he is. So whenever, whenever uh, Moses is in the desert, and Moses needs water for the people. You know what God says? God says, talk to that rock over there. And Moses is like, say what now? You know? And he talks to a rock. And what happens? Water just starts flowing out of a rock. Doesn't make any sense. Joshua is leading the people. And they come to the city of Jericho. And it's got these big high walls. And this great army. And they've got weapons. And they've got strong people. And God says, alright, we're going to conquer Jericho. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk around the city. And Joshua's probably thinking, okay, we're walking around the city. And we're spying it out. We're walking around the city. We're looking for, for cracks in the, in the walls. And God's like, no, just walk around the city and be quiet. And Joshua does it. And he says, alright, now do that again. Every day. For a week. Joshua's probably thinking, this is the dumbest war strategy I've ever heard of in my life. And then God says, okay, on the last day, after you've walked around it seven times, I want you just to yell real loud and blow some horns. Joshua's probably thinking, now we're just telling them where we are. Like, this is not how you strategize war. But then they do it, and the walls fall down, and they run in, and they take the city. God just operates Moses is being chased by Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh and his army are behind Moses. And God says, there's a way to go to Canaan land that's a clear path. So instead of doing that, let's go straight to the Red Sea. 
And Moses is like, all right, do we have boats? Like, is there a way to get across? They get there. There's no boats. There's an army behind them, an ocean in front of them. And God says, now just stand there and hold up your stick. Like, God always operates in an unconventional way. So we shouldn't be surprised that the way of Christ is unconventional. Jesus says, I want to give you eternal life. Okay, how are you going to do it? I'm going to die. I'm going to die. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to sacrifice myself. It's unconventional. So we need to understand today that there may be some things that God asks you to do. There may be a way that he wants you to go. And you don't need to be surprised if it's unconventional. When you're confused and you're sad and you're worried and you're doubting and you don't know what to do, understand that he may ask you to do some stuff that just doesn't make sense. I was reading a, I'm reading a book right now and I'll, I'll probably end up turning into a sermon later on um, in the year, but but in this book, I was reading a story about a man who, uh, he said, you know, I, I pay tithe, I give money for, for myself, I trust God with my own personal finances. He said, but, um, he said, I, all, my business was always kind of tanking. And he said, I decided, what if I just trusted God to be in charge of my business as well as my personal? And he said, so I started, you know, just believing God. He said, every morning I would wake up and I would pray one prayer and I would say, God, what is the one thing you want me to do today in my business? And so he said, and I started writing down anything I felt like God was saying to do in my business. He said, he said, and I, I had some moments where some of the things God would tell me to do were just very unconventional and very weird. And I thought, this is the dumbest thing. He said, and then I would do them and my business would just take off. He said, I'd wake up the next morning, I would write something down, I would do it, and something else. He said, and this guy apparently was in some kind of very big hospital business. He said, in one day, he said, there was, there was a list of 12 things God wanted me to do, and I did all 12 things. He said, the next day, our company bought like 12 hospitals in another country. He said, just the weirdest stuff, because God operates in unconventional ways. The other thing that we need to know about his ways, his way is dangerous. His way is dangerous. Jesus said this. In Matthew 16, 24, he said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, taking up your cross meant dying. Every day we die. We die to ourselves. We die to our desires. We, we die to, to our sin. Every day there's a death that's happening in our life. It doesn't make sense. It's unconventional. But it's what Jesus said. As a matter of fact, whenever you look at the Bible, this is one of the things that that I've, I've had pointed out to me multiple times. Again, we go back to our cultural Christianity where everything is so nice and so wonderful and, and, and you know, we live this cushy little life. But if you go to Iran and you try to live as a Christian, you're being hunted down, you're being murdered, you're being persecuted, you're being thrown in jail. If you go to China and you try to be a Christian, you're being thrown in prison because you have a Bible, right? Like, like the way is unconventional and the way is dangerous. Every one of the disciples, except for John, was martyred. They were all killed. And John didn't get killed, but it wasn't for lack of trying. The, the Caesar ended up throwing him into a, a pot of boiling oil, and the dude just survived. I would have been like, kill me. You know, like, just kill me. Don't put me in boiling oil. But he survived and then got thrown into a trash heap. The way is dangerous. His way is also unpopular. In Matthew 17, uh, 7, 13 and 14, it says this. Jesus speaking, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. 
Gabriel, you are not a good pastor. Like, you're telling us that being a Christian is hard. Yeah, it is. It takes dedication. It takes desire. It, it, it takes me saying, I'm going to trust God when it's unconventional. I'm going to trust God when it's dangerous. And I'm going to trust God when it's not popular. When not everybody else is doing it, I'm going to trust him. Can I tell you something? If everybody is doing something, there's a good chance you're on the wrong path. There's a good chance you're on the wrong path. And so, so the way it is different. The second thing he talks about, he says, I am the truth. Um, and, and listen, we got to trust in his truth. When we're confused, we need truth. We need truth. Here's a neat little thing, and it, and it may be a little nerdy, I don't know, and we'll hurry and get through. But Genesis chapter 1, you need to know this, his truth is foundational. Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, it says this, Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, this is a creation story, let every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds, notice the word seed a lot. These seeds will then produce the kind of plants and trees from which they came. What produces plants and trees? Seeds. Yeah, some of y'all got it. And this is what happened. Verse 12. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants, and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their, their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind, and God saw it was good. Why are we talking about seeds and trees? I, I want to just show you something. When God created the earth, he didn't create the earth with just words. We say that, and it's a good concept. He created the word with truth. Okay, think about this for a second. It wasn't just mere words. If it was mere words, he would have said trees appear, and immediately trees would have appeared. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's this truth that's called seed time and harvest. There's a truth, and, and, and it goes on later on. If you look in, in uh, Genesis 8, we don't have that on the screen. Genesis 8, 22 says seed time and harvest will never cease. Uh, Galatians 6, 7 says whatever you sow, you will reap. There was a truth that God spoke into the earth, and he said seeds will produce plants, and plants will reproduce seeds, and it'll be a, a continual thing to happen. And once he spoke it, he spoke a truth. Then that truth became the foundation for how the world was going to operate for the rest of eternity. And what happens? The Bible says that land produced plants that grew seeds and dropped their seeds and more begin to grow. I don't know where that falls into a seven day creation versus a 6,000 year creation versus a 6 million year creation. I don't know how all that works. I'm going to the creation museum this summer. I'll figure it out. I'll let you know. But I do know this. He didn't just say tree and a tree appeared. He said seed time and harvest. And all of a sudden, the land began to adjust itself to the truth that he spoke. What does that mean for me and you? Here's what it means. It means that there are truths that he has spoken over your life. There are truths from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation that he is speaking over you, over your marriage, over your identity. There are truths that he has spoken. And when he speaks a truth, we adjust to the truth. We don't address the truth to us. The land and the trees had to adjust to the truth that was spoken. The truth is foundational. In other words, I build my life on the truth. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Listen. When we start talking about, you know, all the things that are in our, our society right now with sexuality and gender and and all the, all the different things. 
Listen, the, the, the end of the day is what's happening is people are trying to adjust truth to fit their life instead of adjusting their life to fit truth. Truth is not foundational for them. It's fluid for them. But for you and I, our goal should make truth be foundational. So whatever truth I see in God's word, I need to adjust my life to fit that truth. Because that's how he creates. His truth is everlasting. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So when God speaks something about you in the book of Genesis, it's still relevant to you today in 2023. And it will be relevant to you in 2043. Right? It'll be relevant to you when you get to heaven. That, that there's truths that are not just foundational, they're also everlasting. And then, and then lastly, his truth sets us free. John 8 uh, we read this last week, John eight thirty one and 32. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, right, the truth, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's important to understand today that sometimes we need truth in our life to set us free from something that we're dealing with. Have you ever seen like the TV shows, the old show, Intervention? Remember Intervention? And they would bring in some drug addict and then all their friends and family would be sitting in a circle and they told him, hey, we got donuts and coffee. We're going to have a fun time. And then he gets there, and it's an intervention. And they're all like, you're, you know, killing everybody. And so it's a really bad deal. That's necessary to find freedom sometimes, right? Psalm 32 says this. In, it says this, 32, 2 through 5. It says, yes, for what joy for those who record the Lord, uh, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. In other words, the psalmist is saying, there is joy if you live in truth. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day and night. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed my sins to you, and you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. When we finally expose truth, when we, when we take what's hidden and expose it, we find freedom from that thing. And so if there's an area of your life today that you're struggling with over and over and over again, that, that's why we have, that's why we say we want to pray with you at the front. That's why we have small groups. That's why we, we, we believe in confession and repentance. Why? Because it should be a part of everything that we do. We should constantly be talking. Perry and I just went to a little mini marriage conference this weekend. And on the way back, one of the things the guy said was, he said, you need to have conversations that are intimate conversations with your spouse to the point where you are not hiding anything from your spouse. You need to allow your spouse to know everything about you and, and vice versa. Why? Because there's freedom in that. There's freedom in that. And so it's important for us to find that, that freedom. All right, I'll keep going. The, la- the next one is this. We've got to trust the life giver. He gives us physical life. Uh, John 14, if, if you were to keep reading, I'll cut this part out of the main text. But John 14, 12 through 14, it says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with my father. You can ask anything in my name and I will do it so that the son can bring glory to the father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Listen, Jesus doesn't want to just give you life in the, in the afterlife. He wants to give you life right now. He wants to give you power and purpose right now. There are things that I believe God has set up for you to do. And, and if we have this mindset where I'm a nobody and I'm a nothing and I can't do anything for God, then listen, that's all you're ever going to do. But Jesus says, I've got life for you right now. I've got life for you right now. I've got things for you to do right now. I'm giving you power and authority on this earth 
to do great things. He gives us spiritual life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, uh, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit that's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our very, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. This is so big right here, verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And then finally, he gives us eternal life. John 5, 24 says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, for they have already passed from death to life. As a matter of fact, there's another I am that Jesus spoke in John uh, chapter 11. Whenever Jesus is talking about um, his friend Lazarus who has died, he says this to Lazarus' sister. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you trust this? In other words, we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that if we die in Christ, it is just a speed bump. Death is just a speed bump. There is a, there is a time when we wake up in eternity. And this is a hope that I hold on to. This is a hope that I cling to whenever my family faces death. Or someone in the church faces death, we understand that there is life after death. We'll end with this. This is our last, our last point. So if the band wants to get ready, whatever, we're, we're about to be done. John chapter 14, we'll go 8 through 11. So Philip, so Thomas already said, I don't know where you're going and I don't know how to get there. Now Philip chimes in because Jesus said, talks about the Father, and Jesus is basically comparing himself to the Father. Philip doesn't get it. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Everybody say satisfied. <laughs> See, there's this level of satisfaction uh, that, that Philip doesn't have, right? He's saying, yeah, we've been with you for three years. We've seen you walk on water. We've seen you raise the dead. We've seen you open blinded eyes. We've heard all your teachings. We've been with you for three years. We've seen all the things... But now if you'll just do one more thing for us, if you'll just show us the Father, then we'll be satisfied. I think if I was Jesus, I would have slapped him in the mouth. Right? Right? Like at that point, I would be like, is, is everything that we've done for three years not been good enough for you? And, and so Philip says that Jesus is so cool, though. Jesus does not slap him. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show, you, show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. Jesus is setting us up here for the Trinity. He's saying that the Father and I are one. So anybody that says that Jesus never claimed to be God, they're, they're wrong on this one too. Here it is again. Jesus says the Father and I are one. He's in me, I'm in him, we're the same. Later on, he goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit. And, and he, he leads us through the Holy Spirit. And he talks about how whenever I leave, the Holy Spirit comes. In other words, we're not here together. I'm going to go, he's going to come. And, and he's, part of, he's part of our group. He's part of our trinity. But Jesus 
the, the part that stuck with me when I was reading this was Philip saying, we will be satisfied. There needs to be a place in us when we're hurt and we're broken and we're confused that Jesus is enough. We need to trust that Jesus is enough. Is he enough for you today, church? Is he enough for you? I, I have to think about this all the time. And, 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 you know, in my world, so not in your world, but in, in my world as a, as a pastor, as that side of me, you know, the, the comments are always asked, the questions are always asked, the comments are always made about um, how's your church doing? And, and, and the question of how is your church doing only means one thing, how many butts are in the seats? That's what they mean. If someone says, how's your church doing? I say, oh man, we are a very healthy church and, and, and you know, our people are serving God. The next question that follows is, yeah, but how many people show up on Sunday, right? And so sometimes what happens as a pastor, and, and, and you apply this to how this works in your life, okay? It may not work, it doesn't work the same way for you, but apply it to your life. As a pastor, sometimes what we do is we're not satisfied that the Spirit of God showed up in church on a Sunday. You know why? Because I can look out, oh, there's only two people on that row and two people on that row. So that's one, two, three, four seats that someone could be, oh, there, there's a whole empty row right there. I mean, there's people could have been sitting there, but no one's sitting there today. And as a pastor, sometimes we don't think about who's in the seats. We just care about how many seats are full. And sometimes we have to go back to this place where Jesus says, am I not enough? Am I not enough? Are you satisfied that I showed up? Or are you only worried about who else didn't show up? Now that's my world. I don't know how that applies in your world. But at some point, we've got to be satisfied that Jesus is enough. We've got to know, we've got to trust that he's the way. I can't make a way myself. He's the truth. I can't come up with my truth and your truth. I have to have his truth. And he is the life. Why don't you stand up with me as I read this last scripture. Philippians chapter 1. I love this verse. It means a lot to me. This is the Apostle Paul. And Paul is writing this knowing that there's a good chance he's about to be murdered. Like he gets it. He knows how the game is played. He knows how the government works. He knows he's probably about to be beheaded. And so here's one of the things he says to the Philippian church in verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have su sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I love that. I love the fact that Paul is facing death and he says, I expect to be courageous in the face of death. I love that. To me, it's a very manly thing to say. And it's one of those things I, I, I want to be like that, right? But then he goes on to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I live, if I get through this trial, if I get through this issue and I live, Man, that's Christ. Like, I'm going to still, I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to be in his way. I, I, I'm going to be, uh, you know, living in his truth. I'm going to be operating in his life. There are things that God has for me to do here on this earth, and I'm going to keep trucking. I'm going to keep doing them. But if I die, if I don't make it, if they do cut my head off, which they did, 
then that's gain. Why? Because then I'll get to be with him physically. I will get to be in his presence for eternity. Now listen, this is not a mindset that every Christian has. But this is a mindset I want you and I to have. That God, I want to be satisfied. If all I ever get is you, then that's all I ever need. If all I ever get is you, that's all I ever need. If I never have the biggest business or the biggest church or I make the most money, if, if I never have um, all the things that I thought I was going to have, if I don't have the kids and I don't have the, the spouse and I don't have the friends, if I don't have the house that I wanted or the car that I wanted, am I going to be satisfied knowing that I've got you? And see, when we live a life where we're satisfied with Christ, then all that other stuff doesn't matter anymore. If you have it, it's great. If you don't have it, it's fine because I've got him. And what kind of life, what kind of purpose, what kind of destiny could we walk in if we were satisfied, if we trusted that he was enough for us? I'm going to ask some of our prayer team people to come down to the front this morning. And I just want to pray over us. So for just a second, close your eyes. Holy Spirit, I just invite you into this place. And and you begin to pray on your own. Begin to ask God. Just begin to ask Him what He's speaking to you today. What are the things that God's trying to deal with your heart on today? So Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place. We invite you to speak into our hearts and our lives. For some of us, God, we may not be serving you at all. Maybe, maybe we don't have that eternal life, that hope of a future because, because God, we're living in our sin. We're we're still living in in, um, rebellion against you. Maybe it's not flagrant rebellion, God, but we're just living our own life. If that's you today, he is calling you home. He is calling you to a place of trust. He is calling you to a place of submission. He's calling you to the way, to the truth, and to the life. He's saying, follow my way. Live my truth, and I will give you life. For some of us, we may just be struggling today with confusion and doubt. We may be struggling with fear and anxiety. There, there may be some areas in our family or in our jobs or, or, or in our neighborhoods, whatever the case is, that we're struggling today. And you know what you need today? You need to know that He's enough. You need to have comfort in trusting Him. You need to know that He is God all by Himself. And He's preparing a future and a place for you. The Bible says this, it says, carry one another's burdens. And today we want to carry your burdens with you. We want to pray with you. We want to love on you. So God, I just pray right now that as we end this service, as we sing one more song, that you would speak to our hearts, you would minister to our lives, you would deal with our fear. God, I pray for your comfort. I pray for trust and belief to fill this house today in Jesus' name.